Um, well, if you're new to New Hope, welcome. Glad you're here. And we've been working through the book of John for a number of weeks now, um, getting on week 40, actually. And we're into chapter uh, 14, just kind of wrapping it up. Uh, just a few more chapters left to go in the book. We called the series The Portrait, and uh, it's because of John 1.18. It says very specifically that no man has seen God, but Jesus has explained him or created a picture for us. Jesus has explained what God looks like. Everybody wants to see what God looks like, and we're told that Jesus is the, the very visible manifestation of God. We can actually see what God looks like by looking at Jesus. So where we left off at last week is understanding that um, they're in the upper room. It's the Last Supper. It's um, the evening before the crucifixion of Jesus. He's about to be executed. And so he's, his life literally ends in hours just not even 24 hours, within 12 hours or so, he'll be nailed to the cross. And so we've got a, a really very private setting. It's very intimate. Just Jesus and those who are closest to him. And the, the, the disciples' world is about to be shattered. And Jesus knows that. Emotionally, they're going to be in trauma. And so he's trying to encourage them and, and give them some comfort, but he's also he's painting a picture of the future. So in these remaining hours, as we saw last week, Jesus is sketching a picture of what your future looks like. We looked at heaven last week and what it means when it talks about these mansions and specifically what the promise is that's awaiting us. And then he gets back into it this evening. And so like last week, we're really kind of leaning in to hear the syllables. We want to understand what's he talking about. We want to understand this. And the last week he started in John 14, 1, by saying, let not your heart be troubled. Well, because they had good reason to be troubled. And then he gives the reasons why they shouldn't be that we looked at last week. Let me just review this with you. This is what we looked at. He's going to the Father's house of many mansions, and he's going there to prepare a place for you. He was saying that to the disciples, and he says that to everyone who is a believer in Jesus. Number two, he's going there to prepare a place for them specifically. And number three, when the preparations are complete, he's going to come back in person. That's his promise to us. Now, in the midst of that, as we got to the end of last week, we saw that he said that his disciples are going to do greater things that he, than he did himself. And we looked at what that means for us to do things that are greater than Jesus. Because many of us would say, no way, I'm not doing things greater than Jesus. How is that possible? And we looked at what that means. So this concept of us doing greater things really causes us to have this prospect of that anticipates a need. And here's the need that it anticipates. It anticipates that I've got to have some source of an enabling power to do these great things that Jesus is talking about. If I'm going to do this kind of activity that we looked at last week, and again, you can look at the passage tonight, we've got to have something to draw from. What, what are we going to plug our extension cord into so that we get that power source for us to be able to do that? Now, he's about to tell us because it's God himself by his own power through his spirit. Go with me to verse 15 in John 14. You'll be able to follow along on the screen as well. And um, perhaps you have your own Bible. You can follow along there. John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. Verse 17, that is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. So right away we find when he says, I want you to keep my commandments, 
There's a link, an inseparable link between loving God, following God, and obeying God. The two cannot be separated in following His commandments. And, and if we don't do that, the Bible is very specific. It calls you a liar. Uh, you don't believe me? Let me show you on the screen. It comes from 1 John 2 3. By this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. The one who says, I have come to know Him and does not keep His commandments, He is a liar and the truth is not in Him. Well, why don't you tell us what you really think, John? <laughs> I mean, he's being straightforward, isn't he? This is the book from 1 John when he wrote this later on. And he said very specifically, you're a hypocrite if you say that you belong to God, but you're not following His commandments. So he goes on to say, but whoever keeps His word in Him, the love of God has truly been perfected. What that tells me, church, is that this requires a commitment. A commitment on my part and a commitment on your part that I will not pick and choose. I will not choose to follow this commandment, but ignore this one. Uh, what are we talking about when we're talking about the commandments? Well, of course, there's the Big Ten. Okay, We're all familiar with those. Charlton Heston helped us with that. We know what that engraving is in the stone. We put them on courthouses across the United States, and unless the ACLU makes people take them down. But they're there right now. We've got these Ten Commandments in courtrooms. People can look at them and see that our judicial system was founded on the commandments here in the United States. So we've got the Big Ten, but what are Christ's commandments specifically when He says, My commandments? Because that's really possessive. In verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And the, the my is capitalized. Now, Jesus and God are the same. So obviously the big ten are part of this. But what would we say is the great commandment? Do you know a lawyer came and asked Jesus that question? What's the great commandment, teacher? And Jesus had a response. You will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your mind. Very interesting that he attached that third one to this. And then he said the second great commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, let's see this. This is the literal words of Jesus, Matthew twenty-two thirty-five. This is the way he said it. A lawyer asked him a question, testing him, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Meaning everything hinges on these two things. And that's God saying that. It's not one of his followers. It's God himself. So why does he break it down into those three categories? All your heart. All your soul. All your mind. What is your mind? Well, let me show you the Greek word that Jesus used, or the way it was translated in Greek, dionoia. And this one's not in your notes, but we've added it in on the screen this morning so that you could see it. it. It's talking about that area of deep thought. In the quietness of your day, the privateness moments when you're alone and you're able to concentrate and focus, what are you thinking about? What is your mind centered on? Because this is talking about imagination, understanding, the faculty of the mind, that recess of you that is the deepest part. So Jesus wasn't just going after the heart or the soul, but the mind 
In other words, all of you. You can't give part of yourself to Him. So this is really going to require some self-examination. Can you command someone to love you? Because that's what Jesus is saying. You shall love the Lord your God. How do you command someone to love you? I think if that was possible, computer geeks all over the world would be commanding supermodels all over the world to love them. But that doesn't happen. There has to be a relationship. And Jesus is in relationship with the disciples when he says this. There's going to be a relationship first. And so you shall, as a result, love the Lord your God with your soul, your heart, and your mind. Well, let's take a look at what that means because a, a life of someone who is truly saved is going to represent a life of submission. So what does it mean to give my heart and my soul and my mind? There are certain qualities that are found in every single believer. Very specifically, here, here's the, just the basics. Number one, it's a regenerated heart. And we see that in, in John 3, and we see that in Titus 2. It talks very specifically about what a regenerated heart looks like. A brand new heart. And number two, we've got minds that are renewed. You should ro- focus on Romans 2 this, or 12 this week. If you get a chance, write that down in your notes, Romans 12 too, and see what Paul was writing about when he's talking about a transformed mind. What does that actually look like? And as a result, Christians cannot help but reflect that they're new creatures in Christ. We've got a totally new outlook. The truth is this. Everything that we've just done, all the singing, all the praise, all the profession of our faith, every bit of it is in vain if there is no evidence that there's been life change and that we follow His commandments. So we might say there's more hypocrisy in our lives than what we think if we're not following what He asked us to follow. And here's what's most striking to me about Jesus' timing in saying this. In the last couple weeks, we've seen, very specifically, this compassionate Savior who's washed their feet, setting an example for them, who's made sure there's been a meal, a banquet spread for them. He's told them that He's never going to leave them, and I'm preparing mansions just over the hilltop for you, and your future is secure. And now, in contrast to that, He does not allow His majesty to go unnoticed. He insists on His majesty being recognized and His authority. So in combination with Him saying, this is how you're going to love each other. Remember who I am. And you shall honor My commandments. But you can't do it on your own. So He follows it up by saying, I'm going to go to My Father and I'm going to ask Him to send you a helper because you're going to need some help in order to do this. He says very specifically, he will give you another helper. Meaning there's going to be some kind of a leadership change. And I'm sure that rocked the disciples' world thinking, what, a new leader's coming in? They didn't fully grasp and understand this. Now, I want to help you understand what's being said here because the meaning cannot be grasped in the English language. The Greek language captures it very well because there were two forms of another. So when Jesus says, I'm going to ask him to give you another helper, We need to see what does he mean by another. First of all, let's look at the Greek definition for the word Holy Spirit, the helper. And it's the word parakletos. And paraklete or parakletos is the word that's associated with the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. Look at all those words that go along with the name of the Holy Spirit. An intercessor, a counselor, an advocate, a comforter, an exhorter, an encourager. In the Greek language, it literally means someone who's going to come alongside you. 
And that's a, a beautiful definition for us, but it doesn't help us really capture it in the English language. So let me show you another component to this. Jesus said, I'm going to ask him to send you another helper. See, in the English language, we only have one word for another. It's another, okay? That's it. That's all we have. But in the Greek language, they have two words for another. The first one is allos. And it means, in the biblical Greek, another of the same kind. And so Jesus is using the word allos here. I'm going to ask the Father, my Father in heaven, to send something else just like me, another of the same kind, the Holy Spirit, as opposed to the word heteros. And the word heteros is another of a different kind. We see an example of that in Acts, the book of Acts. Stephen's about to be killed. Stephen, the first Christian martyr, is about to be stoned. And before he's stoned, he has the privilege of recounting all of the Israelite history. And he starts all the way back at the time of Joseph and moves forward. And as he talks about Joseph, he uses this verse right here, Acts 7.18. Another king over Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph, he says, he uses the word another, but it's the word heteros in this case. And it means another of a different kind. One who had no relationship to Israel whose attitude towards them was radically different, and he's the one who put Israel into bondage, into slavery for 400 years, that particular Pharaoh. So Jesus is saying, I'm not sending someone to you who's opposed to you. I'm sending someone who's exactly like me, another of the same kind. Now today, when we use the word comforter, it sounds like a quilt, doesn't it? It sounds like somebody's going to cover me with a blanket, and I get to go to bed, I'm going to be cozy. But that's not the way the biblical use of the word comforter is used here. And and we want to be very careful about this because when Jesus says helper, it has overtones of something being subordinate, something that's under us and inferior, but that's not the case. We usually think of comfort as something soothing, someone who's consoling, and that's true in the case of the Holy Spirit. But true comfort strengthens you. True comfort encourages you, gives you the encouragement to face life boldly. What did Jesus do for the disciples? He encouraged them. He not only comforted them, but he encouraged them to get out there and get on mission, get on point, get out there in the world, take on these tasks, keep on going. He doesn't take away and rob us of our responsibility, but rather he finds a way for us to give it all. So that's what a true comforter is. That's why the Holy Spirit is the perfect substitute for Jesus Christ. Like Jesus, the Holy Spirit is going to teach and strengthen and encourage. So that's why Jesus says, I'm going to send you another of the same kind. It's part of me. It's who I am. It's my spirit. And that church will free you up to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Because you can't do it on your own. That's why he's sending another of the same kind. Now we're told in verse 17 that Jesus calls him the Spirit of truth. And that means he's got this work of revealing truth to believers. If you go here to New Hope on a regular basis, you know that usually when I start out a message, I begin teaching by praying and asking God that he would allow his Holy Spirit to be our teacher. Because God says right there in verse 17 that He is the Spirit of truth. He's the one who teaches us. 
What we understand from Scripture, according to what Jesus is saying here, is the world, those who are non-believers, cannot receive the Holy Spirit. And they do not see Him or know Him. And this is really intense because it does not say they will not receive Him. Look very closely at your text. It says they cannot receive Him. Why can they not receive Him? We're told unsaved people, people of what Scripture calls the world, who do not belong to Jesus, cannot grasp spiritual truth. Have you ever sat down with someone who is a person who has no involvement in church whatsoever? They have no interest in the things of God, and you've tried to have a biblical conversation with them, and their eyes glaze over? They can't understand what you're talking about. It makes no sense. Look with me on the screen. 1 Corinthians 2.14 A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Now that tells me very specifically that the world cannot see or understand the Holy Spirit. Why? Because they've never been born again. Jesus said, unless a man is born again, he could not see the kingdom of God. So let's put this in real practical terms. How do we understand this? Well, in this room right now, there are all kinds of radio waves moving across the atmosphere. We cannot see them, but they're there. Those radio waves, those cell phone waves, those signals are bouncing off the walls in this room. They've been there since creation. It's only recently that we've learned how to create devices to tap into those signals. God created radio waves. We don't create them. And radio instruments have learned how to dial into those and send signals over those. So in the very same way, without a radio, radio waves go unnoticed. Here's the best illustration I can give you. I saw this last week in Fox News. I want you to see this image on the screen of this array of satellite dishes. It's called the SKA Project. It's in Australia and in South Africa. And the SKA Project is literally a one-square-mile region of satellite dishes pointed at one region in the universe at the deepest part of space that they believe that they can reach. So they've dedicated $1.5 billion. 20 countries have come to de- together to do this. $1.5 billion to make this array of satellite dishes in South Africa and this one in Australia, all pointed at the same region in space for this reason, to try and discover the origins of man. Now, if they'd give me the $1.5 billion, I'd be glad to tell them. I can take them right to the source right now and they won't have to put up any more satellite dishes. Now here's the issue. No matter where they point their dishes into outer space, they're not going to find the answer because they're dialed in on a different frequency. They're not tuned in to the one that Scripture calls the Holy Spirit. And He does not operate on the world's wavelength. He operates totally differently. So the Holy Spirit goes unnoticed by the unsaved because they have no spiritual tuner to dial into it. They've never had a regenerated heart. So in response to that, Jesus says, he's not only going to be with you, abiding with you, he's going to be in you. And that is new. That is completely new. Before the history of the world, up until this point, it had never happened that the Holy Spirit would indwell. What we understand by looking at the Old Testament is that the Holy Spirit would come upon an individual 
And God will enable that person to do amazing, magnificent things and then depart. But when we get to the New Testament, we see the Holy Spirit in an unprecedented way, personally and permanently indwelling those who believe. And if you belong to Jesus Christ this morning, you have the Holy Spirit in you. Now, if I was in Africa this morning at David's church and I just said that, they'd all say, amen, right? Wouldn't they, David? Absolutely, because they encourage their pastor when he preaches, okay? <laughs> so, you have the Holy Spirit in you, church. All right, all right. So he's indwelling you, but here's the reality of this. Every place you go, he goes. Everything you see, he sees. Everything you participate in, he participates in. That's a serious responsibility, isn't it? So that's how you can see that it's linked with if you have my commandments and you follow them, you are the ones who really love me, and that becomes really convicting, doesn't it? It's that sense of, wow, every place I go, I carry God with me. Now, that in itself is heavy enough, so Jesus kind of breaks the air and transforms over to something else into verse 18. Look with me at this. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will also live. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Can you imagine the sense of loss that the disciples are feeling at this moment? They've given up everything for Jesus. Commercially, their business enterprises, they closed them down years ago. And they've been walking with him day in and day out. And now he says, I'm leaving. So the sense of loss is incredible. And he doesn't want them to feel like they're going to be left alone. So as foreboding as the loss may seem at this moment, it's only going to be temporary. If you happen to have an NIV copy of the Bible, the New International Version, it may use the word comfortless there. I will not leave you comfortless. But the actual Greek language means orphans. And what's the deal with orphans? Why use that illustration there? Well, what's the situation with an orphan? They're alone. They're abandoned. They have no sense of future. No sense of promise. They feel utterly rejected. And Jesus said, I don't want you to feel that way. Because wherever you go, you're going to have the Spirit with you. Why should you feel like an orphan? There's no need to have a troubled heart. That's why he can say, let not your heart be troubled. Because you're going to have the very Spirit of God dwelling within you. He goes on to say, after a little while, and that's a very specific phrase, after a little while, meaning instantly, within hours, I'm going to be gone. After a little while, you're not going to see me anymore. It's only a few hours to the crucifixion. Apparently, after the resurrection of Jesus on Easter Sunday, None of the non-believers in all of Israel saw Jesus. Whether they couldn't see him or they didn't see him, we don't know. We do know that he appeared to 500 people, but apparently all 500 of those were believers. And so the non-believing world couldn't see him. That's why he says, they're not going to see me anymore. But you will see me, speaking very specifically to the disciples at that point. Why? Because they were the witnesses to the resurrection. They're the ones who got to actually see him. So you will see me. You're going to be given visible proof that because I live, you're going to live also. Because I've defeated death, you're going to be able to live in eternity. That's the promise there. So this is the reassurance. Death does not end the relationship. 
Death is not the end of the relationship with him at all. You go on. So that's why he ends by saying, in that day, you will know. What's he talking about there? If you've got your Bible this morning, or maybe you took one of the pew Bibles as your own this morning, circle in there that word, that day, because it's a very specific day that he's talking about. It's the day called Pentecost. The day of Pentecost is what he's talking about here. In that day, you will know, because the Spirit is going to give evidence, and everything is going to make sense. All your pistons are going to be firing. Spark plugs are going to go off. Everything that I've said is going to make sense to you because when the Holy Spirit comes, who is the Spirit of truth, who is your teacher, you're going to understand exactly what happened over these last three years. Go with me to verse 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Now, to have something, when he says, he who has, just to be in possession of it is not enough, church. I am in possession of my Bible right now. You are in possession of your Bible. You're in possession of your wallet. You're in possession of your cell phone. But to have in the way that Jesus is talking about here, when he says, he who has my commandments, literally it means to grasp with the mind. He who has my commandments in him. That's the one who keeps them. That's why he goes on. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. It's not just enough to have them, but to carry them out. That's who Jesus says, I'm going to disclose myself to that person. I want you to see the Greek word for disclose because it's a very specific meaning. It's the word emphanizo. And emphanizo is to exhibit or to put on display and so, or disclose through words. So we understand, like we talked about last week, that Moses on Mount Sinai, he's standing before God, and he says, God, I've done everything that you have asked me to do. Now will you show me your face? Will you disclose yourself to me? That's what he's asking for in Exodus 33. Lord, specifically, I would like you to show me your glory. I pray that. Disclose yourself. Because God also says in Proverbs 8, 17, I love those who love me, and those who diligently seek me will find me. So what's Jesus talking about when he says, I'm going to disclose myself to you? He's talking about the Holy Spirit working through you so that your actions, your words, your mind, your heart, soul, and mind, everything that you have completely committed to him, that's the one he's going to reveal himself to. And only those who obey his commandments enter into this union of understanding. I want to be very clear here. This obedience that we're talking about, following his commandments, is not the cause of salvation. That is not what gives you your salvation. Salvation is in faith alone, in grace alone, through Jesus Christ. But the obedience here is the result of the relationship. Look with me on the screen at Romans 3.20. Because by the works of the law, it's talking about the commandments, that's what the law is. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Meaning you can't work your way in. However, for the law does reveal the knowledge of sin. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So the inevitable result, this is where we're going to end up this morning. I've got just a couple more verses to go through with you. The inevitable result is that the obedience is going to flow from you as a result of having a regenerated, transformed heart who wants to follow God and as a result of that is in love 
with the relationship with the Father. Here's where we're going to begin to end. Verse 22, Judas, not Iscariot, and, and understand, I didn't put that in there. That's John who put that in parentheses. He wanted us to understand this is a different Judas. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words and the word which you hear is not mine but the father's who sent me. I understand that Judas is in total bewilderment. When you see this Judas mentioned in the Bible, it's the disciple Thaddeus. He's known by two different names. So Judas, not Iscariot, is also known as Thaddeus from what we can determine. And he's doing this question and answer thing with Jesus. Philip has done it. Thomas has done it. Peter has done it. So Judas jumps in and he wants because he's confused. How can you show up and, and show yourself to the world or to us but not to the world? Now, first of all, if I'm Judas, I'm going to be asking for a name change, Okay. I'm just going to go to the courthouse and say, will you give me a new driver's license? And I'd like it to say Thaddeus from now on. I, I don't want to be known as Judas anymore. We're not sure if that's what happened, but he's now known as Thaddeus. So he's confused. Why? He's thinking that Jesus is still going to carry out his earthly kingdom. He's thinking that Jesus is still going to overthrow Rome. So his mind is, well, how can you disclose who you are, the king of glory, to us but the world won't know? I mean, how, how is that going to happen that Israel will be restored again? So his question is not so much why as it is how. How could this be? I'll tell you the truth. It is an act of mercy that Jesus does not at this point manifest himself to the world. Because to do that would mean judgment. You understand that after the resurrection, we're told according to the Bible that Jesus will never be seen by the world again until he returns in the second coming for the purpose of judgment. So that he doesn't disclose himself to the world means he's patiently waiting. He's still giving opportunity. He's not revealed himself. This is what it says in 2 Peter 3. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So one day he will return, but he's being incredibly patient. So Jesus does not directly answer Thaddeus's question. Instead, he's focusing on a much, much bigger issue, and it's the issue of who's really my follower? Because he gives the measuring rod. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. That's the measuring rod. It's very simple and straightforward. So that's the one whom we're going to come to and we're going to make our home with him. Have you ever heard someone use the phrase, I've got Jesus in my heart? That's the passage it comes from. My father and I will come and set up residence in him. We're going to make our abode with him. That's the promise that's given. But conversely, he who does not love me, we've got no part of him. So here's where we end this morning, church. Verse 25, these things I have spoken to you while abiding with you but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. For the disciples, it was incredibly hard to understand the things that you know. If you've been raised in the church, you've been maybe a believer for a long time or even a very recent time, the things that you know right now were a total mystery to them at this point. They could not understand it. 
So we would say that the Holy Spirit is now our resident truth teacher. He is our teacher in residence. He's revealing things to you, helping you to understand God's Word. And Jesus said, I'm going to ask that this one would bring to remembrance all that I said to you. Now at that point, he's speaking specifically to the disciples because they had a huge task before them. They were going to have to sit down with ink and pen or quill and parchment or leather, animal hide, and begin etching out all the things that they knew about Jesus. And it's the Holy Spirit we see according to what Jesus has said here is the one that's going to bring remembrance to everything that I said. So this is a promise of the disciples getting some divine inspiration, supernatural memory for the task before them. And when it comes to memory, most of us would just be happy to make it through algebra class just to be able to remember all the things that we studied and go through those exams. But what we're talking about here in this case is the speaking of the Holy Spirit directly to these individuals in a supernatural way, giving them a completely inerrant understanding of who Jesus was and the things that he said. So here's what we understand. A function of the Holy Spirit is a teacher. And I encourage you throughout the week when you pray, when you have your private time with God, Maybe you open up your Bible. The first thing that you do is you ask God, Father, would you allow the Holy Spirit to instruct me at this point? Help me to see things I cannot see on my own. I start out every week when I begin studying my materials that exact same way. I ask the Father to help me to see things I will not be able to see on my own because it's the Spirit who is the teacher. So here's what we understand. The Holy Spirit inspired the very words of Scripture not merely the thoughts of the writers. Here's how we know that. 2 Peter 1.20 But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Why is that the case? Because all Scripture is from God. Everything is inspired by God according to 2 Timothy 3.16. God breathed life into these words. They're inspired from Him. So, let's sum it up this way. In the moment of their greatest distress, the emotional trauma like they've never known before, what have we seen over the last three weeks? Jesus comes before them recognizing that the situation looks desperately hopeless. And aware of the disciples' distress, what does he point them to as the ultimate source of hope? Guys, you've got a mansion, and I'm going there personally to prepare it for you. And when I get there, I'm going to ask the Father. He's going to send another of the same kind, just like me. It's my spirit back to you. And he's going to help you understand all these things. It'll all make sense to you. So what does he do here? He shows them the promise of their future. He shows them the triune God, the Trinity, and the Word of God. In your moments of distress, you feel like trauma is surrounding your life. You root your promises in your future, what God has promised for you, that He is the Trinity, He has control over everything, and His Word is the source where you go to find that. Those are the three things that He showed to the disciples. No wonder he went to verse 27 and said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. We're not going to go into that today. This is where we're going to end this morning. 
We're going to get into that one next week because it's a really, really big subject. So here's the bullet points. I just want to remind you of what we looked at over these last three weeks because we've seen Jesus in this last room setting. He's going to the Father's house. He's personally making provision for our coming. When it's completed, He's coming back to bring us to Him. He would enable us to do things that are greater still than what we think we can do. Whatever capacity we need to do these things, the Holy Spirit is the one that's going to enable us. And when we pray in His name, He will respond. The Holy Spirit's going to be our encourager, and you will not be left as orphans, church. No wonder Jesus started out in verse 1 by saying, Hey, let not your heart be troubled. I got it all figured out. Let me explain it to you. And that's what you've seen over the last three weeks. Jesus, God the Son, explaining the plan of the future to the disciples who are in trauma. Let's pray right now and ask God that His Holy Spirit would seal these truths in our heart. Would you do that with me? Father, we come before You recognizing that You are the source of all truth. And we ask for a supernatural ability this week, next week, a month from now, to remember the promises that we've heard in these last three weeks about how you desire to comfort us in times of trauma and how your Holy Spirit will serve and minister to us. Father, even this afternoon or tomorrow, we don't know what tomorrow holds, but you do. You know what the plan is. But God, help us to remember to lean into you when we're feeling incredibly weak. Help that to be our first response, Father. Cause that to be our first response. When our checkbook is empty and when our jobs seem threatened, our relationships seem on the rocks, God, remind us that you are our comforter and our encourager. We ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Have a great week, church.